Since 1971, Beautio Books has specialized in ornithology and natural history. They're a small, family-owned and operated mail-order bookstore with the largest selection of new, used, and rare birding and ornithology books in the world and a knowledgeable staff ready to help. Find field guides, travel guides, ornithology, natural history, humor, even children's books to inspire the next generation's love of nature. Visit beautyobooks.com to find everything you're looking for, and ABA members receive 10% off. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am your host, Nate Swick. We talk sometimes here about how important it is for people to have what I call nature literacy and how birding is an excellent contributor to that. Not least of which, because if you're going to be a person making decisions about policies that impact birds and wildlife, it helps to have the right sort of information because... As birders know, as much as anyone, there's a lot of bad information about birds out there. And making decisions based on bad information leads to bad laws, bad policies, or at least an extremely embarrassing situation. This is all preamble to recent news out of Kentucky, where a state senator, Gary Boswell, introduced Senate Bill 59 last week called the Hawk Bill wherein it would prohibit the Kentucky Department of Fish and Wildlife from enforcing and imposing fines on the taking, by that I mean shooting or poisoning, of Cooper's hawks or red-tailed hawks, and only Cooper's hawks and red-tailed hawks. These birds are obviously protected, as are all native bird species in the U.S. and Canada, by the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. Violators are potentially subject to fines and jail time, though the latter is rarely enforced. That did not dissuade Senator Boswell, who submitted the bill on behalf of three constituents who called him to complain about hawks. The first lost free-ranging chickens to a hawk. The second allegedly witnessed a hawk swoop down and carry off his cat in front of his child. A lot going on there. And a third was tired of hawks picking off songbirds at their bird feeder. Senator Boswell supplemented these complaints with a photo from his personal trail camera showing what he claimed was a group of hawks attacking baby turkeys on the complaints. For the first, assuming that the predator is actually a hawk and not a cat or a mink or some other thing. It's worth noting that the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service does, in fact, offer a federal depredation permit to allow chicken farmers to kill predators, including hawks, provided they can prove that they have tried other non-lethal deterrents unsuccessfully. One assumes that Senator Boswell's constituent has not yet done so. Even so, a new law, not necessary. This complaint, irrelevant. On the second, I have some skepticism. Even a red-tailed hawk would find it difficult to carry off a fully grown cat. Maybe the cat is a kitten. I feel like if it was, they would have said so. Pull on the heartstrings a little bit. But this story reminds me of those doctored videos that go around every once in a while where people get concerned about neighborhood hawks and their pets on next door. I'm not saying it can't happen. I'm just saying it pings my BS detector. And third, if you don't want to feed birds, and that includes hawks, then don't feed birds birds, man. I feel like the odd exhibitor strafing your feeder setup is the price you pay for enjoying birds out your window. Hawks gotta eat too. And the photo of the group of hawks attacking the turkey chicks. Well, Senator Boswell posted it to Facebook. And as it turns out, the hawks are 
European starlings, which it's worth noting are not protected by the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. They can be legally killed, but they are, and I emphasize this, not hawks. And it's not even clear whether the starlings are attacking the turkeys as much as they're both kind of in the same place feeding on the same things. All this pretty embarrassing for Senator Boswell, were he capable of being embarrassed. If you thought that an elected official might have checked with the State Department responsible for enforcing or rather not enforcing the laws pertaining to killing raptors, you would be as mistaken as Senator Boswell with a game cam. The Kentucky Department of Fish and Wildlife were not consulted. Spokesperson Lisa Jackson in a statement to the outlet Outdoor Life said, we discovered the bill when it was filed, just like the general public. This is not an initiative of the department. For what it's worth, Senator Boswell has been the subject of much mockery online because of this bill, and in particular, the Starling misidentification, which could have been cleared up by posting to the ABA's What's This Bird group. You know, we're here to help. It's not clear how likely it is that this bill even gets out of committee, assuming his colleagues have half a brain. If you are interested in writing a response to this bill, the link to do so will be in the show notes, though Louisville Audubon Society has responded in opposition, and I wouldn't be surprised if other chapters or bird clubs in the state of Kentucky would do so as well. There is a strong birding community in the state, and this is an opportunity for them to flex a bit and good on them for doing so. The moral of the story, though, when in doubt, just text a birder. We're everywhere. We get those all the time. On the show today, Mike Lubo is the author of a new detective thriller in which a birder, because of course, plays a major role. He's with me after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the middle of January 2024. We have, at last, our first, first record of the new year, and it is a good one. A song thrush, a widespread, highly migratory Eurasian songbird, was discovered in a neighborhood in Port Angeles, Washington. That's Clallam County in the far northwest of the state. This is not only a first for Washington, but it is the first for the lower 48 and only the fifth for North America. Song thrush is in the same genus as American robin, but looks a lot like our spotted thrushes, unsurprisingly. Three of the previous four song thrushes in the ABA area are from Alaska, but the first ABA area record was a bird from Quebec in 2006. Not all that long ago suggests that birders on the East Coast can be on the lookout for them as well. Also, we look again to Texas, which continues to host an absolutely mind-boggling array of ABA rarities, all of which have stuck around for multiple weeks. It gets one more, when a fan-tailed warbler was seen in Cameron County on the campus of the University of Texas Rio Grande Valley, this is the second record of this Mesoamerican species for Texas. The previous record comes from Big Bend. Those are the highlights for the past week, but for the full list, check out the ABA Rare Bird Alert on Fridays at aba.org slash rba. You can also follow along with the new year of Rare Bird News in our ABA Rare Bird Alert group on Facebook and on ABA Community. A disillusioned ad man and casual birder, a mysterious ransom plot, and the conservation program for restoring peregrine falcons all combine Mike Lubo's irreverent new novel, The Idea People. Mike is a prolific writer and a storyteller whose interests intersect with birding in his online journal, Two-Fisted Bird Watcher. He's with me now to talk about all that. Welcome, Mike. Congratulations on the book. Hi, Nate. Nice to, nice to see you. Nice to meet you. And... Thanks for congratulating me on the book. Uh, of course, it was, a, it was a lot of fun. I, I finished it over the last couple of days. It's not often that one finds a narrative fiction that includes bird stuff. 
uh, and even less likely when that comes from a, a place of personal connection. Did you always imagine a novel where the main character is a birder? Um, no, actually, I imagined a novel where the main character was an advertising <laughs> creative director in a big ad agency, uh, because that's what I was. And I thought, I finally wrote a novel, I would, you know, use things I knew about and of sort of myself in there, well disguised, hopefully. And uh, but I'm also a lifelong birder. And so it was hard to write about the ad guy without having this guy notice birds wherever he went. Right. No joke. Yeah. <laughs> you saw he's walking down the street in Los Angeles and he's talking about, oh, there's a Costas hummingbird. And then there's a red shafted flicker flying into Laurel Canyon. Yeah. And uh, the plot does uh, have a lot to do with the Peregrine Falcon and a release program. And um, in fact, a Peregrine Falcon figures into the solution to the mystery, but Absolutely. I don't want to get no, no spoilers. Yeah. It rings as natural because, as you say, he notices all these birds everywhere he goes, and birders are always birding. It's what we do. It's like not a thing that we can turn off. You're always sort of aware of what's going on around you. Do you think those sorts of traits make for an effective problem solver, uh, detective, however, kind of yeah. haphazardly I, he falls into that role? It's so great that you read, read the book because you picked up on that. And um, you're right. Um, birders are uh, detail-oriented and they're observant mm -hmm. and they put things together and they notice things that don't belong. Like if you saw a scarlet tanager in the Rocky Mountains, you'd say, that's an eastern bird. That's unusual. Yeah. Okay. So that if you're a detective, and I, by the way, the guy in the book does not start out to be a detective. No, not at all. <laughs> he's an advertising creative guy and he's a little bit neurotic and he's kind of... Uh, a good problem solver, but that's just helps him with advertising, making cool ad campaigns and being an award-winning ad guy. He, he's sort of, to a hilarious presentation circumstance, he falls through a wall and disappears from the ad agency. Um, he just doesn't want to walk back into the room because he's embarrassed. And he goes, to, he goes west to meet up with an old friend and talk about a book that they're going to create called Advertising Versus Reality which is kind of an underlying theme of the whole mm -hmm. novel. But um, when, when he's out there, the friend's daughter, who's an outdoorsy, beautiful 21-year-old girl, um, is working on this Peregrine release program in the Rockies. And um, I don't want to get into too much detail, but she gets lost. And uh, there's some indication that she might have been kidnapped. And the old friend asks our ad guy, to go out and use his ad man skills to kind of be an unlikely detective. Mm -hmm. and, um, he does that, and he finds himself going from a big city high-rise to becoming kind of lost in the wilds of the Rocky Mountains, which is a beautiful place to be lost. No he, act he actually finds himself at one point in the book, as you might remember, riding a horse, wearing a cowboy hat with a gun strapped to his hip. So it's kind of like a kid's fantasy come true, but there's some serious business going on too. And, um, and, and throughout the whole thing, birds are kind of making an appearance. Mm -hmm. And I would go so far as to say that Scarlet Tanager, that is an Eastern bird that both he and the lost girl notice. I know, it shows up a couple times. You know, <laughs> Yeah, and you know what? I mean, she even she thinks that's an eastern bird that doesn't belong out here. He thinks the same thing, and look what he is—he's an eastern bird who does not belong in the Rockies. That's right. But, there you go. 
you know, so there's a little symbolism, but the book is not heavy with symbolism. It's, a, no. it's supposed to be a fun story. Yeah, it, it is for sure. Uh, Benjamin Franklin Green, your your protagonist, says early on that his life list is, is sort of a, a private thing, a private pride. Uh, is that how you think of your own birding accomplishments? Did your yeah. own sort of uh, perspectives on birding kind of find their way into his uh, his perspectives well, on birding? Actually, there's a writer named Jim Harrison. Do you know Jim Harrison? I'm not familiar with him. He's a uh, well, he's he's a writer and a poet, and he's a, a, one of my favorite writers. And he he uh, wrote a thing that I actually put in the book. Um, let me see. I I made a note of it to tell you about if I can yeah, find. Yeah, I think it. I made a note of it as well. Um, Anyway, uh, he said that he kept a life a life list, and it was all his own private, um, Mister, his own private thing, and mm-hmm. uh, and pride. So um, it's not the kind of thing that you tell your friends you have, uh, especially if you're me. I'm a kid from the South Side of Chicago. Mm-hmm. You know, nobody was a bird watcher. Yeah. It was kind of considered a dweeby hobby, I guess. But uh, that's, by the way, why I started Two Fisted Bird Watcher. Mm-hmm about 12 years ago to try to offset that image. Um, but anyway, yeah, I've, I've got a life list of maybe 300 something and um, you just can't help doing it if, you know, once you start. Yeah. And if you're not doing it for yourself, then, you know, there's, then what, then what's the point, honestly? Like I, I keep track of my birds and, and if I wasn't for eBird, my number would probably, I probably wouldn't even know my number, but I'm not, I'm not into the, uh, <laughs> that whole internet culture as much as you guys are. So, well, I mean, I think of each bird on my list as, as not necessarily a tick, but it's also sort of a memory of a, of a place that I've been, of a person I was with, of food that I ate, a beer that I drank that I really enjoyed. Like I, all these, all these birds are little mileposts uh, like in my that. own life. And I, I like thinking of my list that way as much as a, you know, well, I can list tell you, you're, you're also a writer. In fact, I know you are a writer. I saw your stuff Less on so now. But <laughs> that is very writerly. I mean, making that kind of a connection. Um, place names sometimes are based on something you saw there. Mm-hmm. Like, like if you saw a um, an east uh, a, a western bluebird, a rock, a bluebird, and you would say that's Bluebird Creek. You know, mm-hmm. and you're yeah, yeah. You know, so uh, anyway, there is a lot of that. Yeah. I mean, you talked about how, you know, a birder makes sort of a compelling character in the detective narrative because they notice things and they put things together and they, yeah. you know, solve problems with every bird that they see. Um, when you were able, when, when Benjamin Franklin Green became a birder in your idea for this, for this book, did the narrative kind of start fitting together? Is that where the Peregrine Falcon came in? Is that where everything started to make sense in, in terms of him being a birder and, and solving these problems when he's out. Right. Well, I, I set out to write a, a book that t- would take me into the Rocky Mountains because I mm-hmm. love that place. And when you write, you actually inhabit, while you're sitting at the keyboard, yeah. uh, you know this because you're a writer, you inhabit that place that you're mm-hmm. writing about. So I thought it would be, I reached a time in my life where I could uh, ease off a little bit from the ad business that I was in. I had some free time. So I wanted to spend some time at my keyboard. And where did I want to go? I wanted to go yeah. to the Rockies. Now, when I'm in the Rockies, you know, um, I'm going to see a mountain bluebird and I'm going to see, maybe I'm going to actually, when I was in the Rockies once hiking, crazy thing, I saw a beautiful 
young woman uh, in a creek uh, swimming a little bit. And I didn't talk to her. I was miles away, but not miles away, but on a hill. And she was, and I could never get that image out of my mind. And then I thought, okay, well, I'm writing a book. Um, I'm going to see what happened to that woman. As it turns yeah. out, that's the woman who gets lost because she follows a red bird into what she thought was just around the corner. Now, mm-hmm. you know, if you've ever been in the wilderness, you can go just around the you corner. go off the trail and you don't know what's happening. Yeah. Right so uh, that all fit together as a place I wanted to write about. Mm-hmm. And then um, it turns out he's my, the character's uh, friend's daughter. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, this is, brings the mystery to, to its beginning. You know, yeah. we'll find the girl. So Peregrine Falcons play a pretty significant role in the narrative of the yeah. of the book. Um, why Peregrine Falcons? I suppose there's a dramatic element to it because they're, they're so dramatic and charismatic. Uh, did you have an experience or an interest in a restoration project to make it such an a, important part yeah. of your plot? I was. I read a book all about uh-huh. um, restoring peregrines to the wild. And um, this was a few years ago. I wish I could give you the title of the book. It just slipped my mind. But um, uh, it was a very interesting book, and I was really into it. And by the way, they use the word hack when they talk about raising birds yeah. uh, in these little cages. They don't let the, the bird normally see the person. They, they feed the bird, and they, they, it's usually on a mountainside. Anyway, um, hack has become, since that book was written, to mean something completely different. Right, right. yeah. Computer world. Thank you, computer world, yeah. yeah. Well, no, I was very absorbed by the book, and I, I wanted to take the information I learned uh, and use it in our book. And, um, you know, so it was about a peregrine falcon who escapes from a, pro, a hack project. Um, there's also a another woman in the book who turns out to be a key character, mm-hmm. and she's in charge of the peregrine program. And um, so, I mean, it, it brought things together. It, brought, it gave him a reason to go to the Rockies. Mm-hmm. It was our girl, our lost girl, a reason to get found. What happens is a peregrine, as you might remember, finds her mm-hmm. and starts to um, key in on her as a source of possible food because he doesn't know any better. And um, it, this brings all these elements together. And while we're doing that, we're in the wilds of Colorado, and it's beautiful. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, it's it's funny how the, I never thought about it before, but the way that the Peregrine Falcon kind of restoration program does incorporate some tropes of like detective novels, the the out there in the wilderness, the little GPS trackers that the bird is using yeah. to people keep track of them. Like that's all useful stuff that can be folded into a mystery narrative in a really effective way. And I really appreciated that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, by the way, the book takes place in 1987. Yes. Which um, I enjoyed revisiting that era there were no <laughs> cell phones so if yeah. a guy gets lost in the mountains he's pretty lost yeah. you know and uh th- there was uh, a, a really no computer in, our, in front of our faces all the time no screens so um it was uh, there was a bit of nostalgia involved mm-hmm. too oh for sure um you know i remember when i became aware of your website two-fisted birdwatcher back in the sort of golden days of online writing before social media vacuumed it all up and I always thought the stuff there was very fun and different from a lot of the other bird writing on the internet at the time. Um, so I was happy to see it kind of randomly come back uh, across my internet feed, uh, actually even before your publicist contacted me about the book, funnily enough. 
Uh, I don't know whether that's a, appealing or a little scary. You're talking about computers getting involved in all aspects of our life. Maybe the algorithm has me pegged. But um, I'm glad to see essays on the site again. Uh, do you find birds or birding to be a particularly rich source of information or a source of narrative? Yeah. And also, you know, you as a writer, Nate, know that you write what you know about. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, I find... Uh, I find myself compelled to write. Either I was writing advertising during my big career in advertising, or else uh, when I'm not doing that, I'll just write any old thing. Mm -hmm. uh, but it usually turns out to be about a recent experience in seeing a bird um, and or a memory of a bird. I live near a body of water, so I see a little Midwest lake, so mm -hmm. I see birds a lot. And um, uh, they're, they're great to write about. And, it's something I know about. So write what you know. That's what they say when That's they, what they say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, birds are, I mean, do you, you, there's a lot of different sorts, types of writing on two fisted bird watchers, sort of, uh, you know, narratives sort of in the line of, of this book and, um, essays just sort of on, you know, thinking about birds and your interactions with them. Um, which do you prefer to write more and which do you find yourself writing more these days? Well, um, getting back to what, is on Two-Fisted Birdwatcher. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not really a typical birding site. Mm -hmm. I don't really write detailed information right, about birds. Right, yeah. I, write, I write fun stories. In fact, sometimes they're just plain short stories that take place in an environment that is either in the wilderness or there's a bird nearby. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, the other day I wrote a, a piece where I was uh, writing as a belted kingfisher. Mm-hmm. And I described, I hope you could see that sometime. Uh, it, it went on just a couple of weeks ago. I described what it feels like to catch a fish and have it slide down my throat and uh, all that. So um, it, it's just fun stuff. It's not serious bird writing. Right, it's right. Well, I mean, I would say that it's all, I, I don't know. I think there are lots of ways to engage with people through birds. And I, I like the fact that there are lots of people doing different kinds of bird writing. Yeah. Yeah, here at the ABA, we're sort of, you know, our bread and butter are some of those more serious stuff about conservation programs or identification challenges or any of that stuff, too. But yeah. I, I really like just creative writing with birds at the center of it, because I think there's not enough of it for starters. And two, I, as I said, every bird is a memory. Every bird kind of invokes these sort of feelings. We all have these 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 interactions with birds that are poetic or or, or whatever. And it's it's nice to be able to explore that. There's a lot of there's a lot of nonfiction in bird riding. There's not enough fiction. But by the way, you just said every bird is a memory. That is a great line. Mm -hmm. And for your next book, that will <laughs> be the title. I'll keep that in mind. There you go. <laughs> I would I would buy that book in a second. Oh, there you go. Well, I mean, I like thinking about birds that way because it's it's as I said earlier, you know, it's not just about the birds for me. It's about the experience that you have when you're looking at birds i mean sometimes it is about the birds sometimes birds are spectacular and you see a particularly cool one and you know that's that's the end all be all but for me it's about the community and the people that are involved in birding and that that's what really interests me and i i like to see writing about that uh and whatever whatever yeah it is. i've usually been um i'm i'm a pretty friendly guy but i've usually been a loner <laughs> i've been a loner when it comes to the birding community uh-huh my approach to birding has pretty much been to go off into the woods with a pair of binoculars by myself. In fact, if I see another birder through the trees in the- <laughs> You're going to tack I'm, your, your root yeah, a little off to the side? <laughs> it's crowded in here, you know? <laughs> so um, 
I've never been part of the so-called birding community other than putting up the Two-Fisted Birdwatcher website, which mm-hmm. on its own, without even any promotion, uh, acquired quite a big following yeah. around the world. Yeah. And um, uh, I, I heard from a lot of really cool people. Um, and uh, it, it, that was a pleasure. And I stopped doing it for about 10 years, and now I just started it up again. Yeah, it great. kind of yeah. corresponding with the novel. I was working on the novel. The mm-hmm. novel's done. I don't want to write a big, you know, thick book again for a while. Maybe I'll do it someday. But uh, writing these posts for Two-Fisted Birdwatcher still gets my writing thing going. Yeah, little, little snacks. Keep keep your mind, uh, yeah. the mind yeah. wetted. Um, do you have any thoughts about sort of the changing face of, of birding culture? Ben Green says that the popular image of bird watcher is a little too dweeby for him. You've used that word uh, before, and it sounds like that's that may be part of what prompted you to write about um, two-fisted bird watcher. Yeah, when I was growing up in the oh for sure, yeah, yeah, it was well, it, you know it was oh heck when I was growing up <laughs> with uh, being a little bit nerdy, knowing about birds, but. Um, I think Two-Fisted Birdwatcher has changed the world in that regard. <laughs> so, Do you think uh, that birding has become less dweeby or that the culture at large has just become more accepting of dweeby stuff? Both things. Both things. And, yeah. and there's a lot of cool people who are prominent in the birding world um, who are rugged, aggressive, you know, um, two-fisted birders. That's right. Man, Marlboro man. man with binoculars. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and they get out in the. Come on, when, you, when you're out in the wilderness, getting bug bitten and thorn cut and everything else, and That's right. getting lost yeah. in the mountains, whatever. I mean, you got to be a rugged person, man, <laughs> men and women. Some yep. of the women that are doing this are really impressive, and they're writing about it too, and yep. that's really impressive. So, um, yeah, I, I think the image has changed. Um, and I, I also I like the fact that your your organization is promoting the health of the birding community. I hope so. Because we're yeah. seeing declines in bird numbers. No and, doubt. You know I don't know what you guys can do about that, but I hope somebody's doing something. Yeah, I mean the hope is the more people you get engaged in birding, the more people that care, the more people that are willing to go to bat at the sort of important conservation. Uh, yeah. Yeah. conflicts that need to be that need to be fought i mean that's that's the hope whether or not it actually pans out i'm not sure but um well, i mean it can't hurt <laughs> i live in a big city with tall buildings and mm-hmm. uh, there, there is a big movement to turn off the lights in this oh yeah during the migrations and um they find sometimes thousands of birds on the street after you know one of those nights but they hit the buildings you know yeah um do you see Ben Green as a character that you will take forward into future novels. Do you enjoy hanging out with him and and yeah. you know talk talking more about his adventures? It does feel like there's room here for another yeah. birdie <laughs> birdie detective story. You're uh, you're very perceptive, and you're not alone in saying that. Ben Franklin Green. I love the middle name too because I'm a fan of Ben Franklin. Oh yeah. The original, talk about a Renaissance man, you know, a scientist, a writer, a printer, whatever. Anyway, um, yeah, a lot of people have been approaching me. The book's become kind of popular. I'm happy. And people are saying, when can we expect a sequel? Uh, Well, you know, you just don't sit down and write a... a Right. In some ways, the second one's harder than the first. (laughs) Yeah. And oh, yeah, there's that sophomore curse or whatever, writing Uh a 
doing it again. But I'm I am writing uh, and I'm thinking about it. And um, yeah, he's a natural. Thanks for bringing that up. Um, you're not alone in suggesting that. Mike Lubo's book, The Idea People, is available wherever you find books. It is a is a fun read. I won't spoil it, but we sort of mentioned earlier the knowledge of birds becomes imp- an important part solving this mystery in a very appealing and satisfying fashion. Uh, thank you so much for your time, Mike. Thank you, Nate. Take care. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoy this podcast, the best way to support it is to join the ABA. Not only do you get to support community projects like this podcast, but membership gets a lot of great benefits, including our magazines, discounts to partners like OM Systems, Cornell Lab of Ornithology, and more. You can find out about signing up for the ABA at aba.org slash join. Special shout outs this week to Sue Anderson of Marquette, Michigan, Joby Cates and family of Evanston, Illinois, and Johnson and the Johnsons of Marquette, Michigan, double Marquettes, a Marquette duet, Rachel Malone of Upper Chichester, Pennsylvania, Holly Milbrandt and family of Fort Myers, Florida, Jeff Nye of North Augusta, South Carolina, Andrew Patrick and family of Bainbridge, Georgia, Mandy Raji of Casterland, New York, and Semier and the Semiers of Harmony, Pennsylvania, Kenneth Schellenberger of Hayes, Virginia, William Snyder and family of Helena, Montana, and Christine Zamora of Gainesville, Florida, who wrote a really nice comment along with her joining. I really appreciate that. Thank you for that, Christine. And thank you for your support and welcome to the American Birding Association. Executive Director of the ABA and Executive Producer of the podcast is Wayne Klockner, who prefers referring to elected officials not as lame ducks, but as modeled ducks. Because while no ducks are lame, modeled is probably the closest. Technical production is by John Lowry, who has never been comfortable referring to peace-loving politicians as doves. Because have you ever seen a male morning dove trying to chase off a rival, encroaching on its territory? Those suckers are vicious. Additional help comes from Maggie Fitzgibbon and Greg Nees, who wonder if Senator Boswell would consider himself to be a hawkish politician. And if so, would this bill apply to him? Oh, how the tables have turned. You can find us online at ABA.org, on social media, most everywhere is American Birding Association. On Blue Sky, we are at ABA Birds. Questions, comments can come to podcast at ABA.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Bird like Tom, and we'll see you next time.